I'm Carlton Owen, immediate past president and CEO of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities, and a proud supporter of Keeping Forest. Keeping Forest is the producer of this podcast called How the River Flows. Keeping Forest is built on a powerful and simple idea to ensure that our region's forests have a future. We're working hard to conserve the 245 million acres of existing forests by supporting private landowners, shedding light on why this land matters, and showing what you can do to help. Every episode of How the River Flows will take a close look at the relationship between healthy forests and clean drinking water. Our experts will share their best ideas along with specific examples about conserving local forests to ensure a lasting, clean supply of drinking water to meet local needs. Each time we'll bring you a new take on how landowners can be compensated for the tremendous environmental value that their working forests provide to everyone. You'll learn how these innovations are financed, managed, and even how your local community can join the effort in protecting our precious Southern forests and the many benefits, including clean water, that they provide. So sit back and enjoy this episode of How the River Flows. Thank you, Carlton. Hi, I'm John Mulcahy, Vice President of Sustainability at Georgia Pacific. I also represent GP in Keeping Forests. In this episode of How the River Flows, we're going to discuss the role of the landowner and the importance forest markets play in supporting the 245 million acres of southern timberlands. It's hard to understate the importance of southern forests. They contribute billions to the economy, help clean our environment, create millions of jobs, and produce nearly 60% of America's timber harvest. These vital lands connect people to nature in a variety of ways. We uphold these forest values to illuminate what makes our woodlands so powerful. My guests today are Dr. Jenny Stevens, Yvonne Knight-Carter, and Brian Bershaw. Dr. Stevens is the CEO of the Center for Air's Property Preservation. In this role, Jenny oversees the strategic direction of the center and their mission to help ensure that low-wealth landowners receive the appropriate tools to protect and sustainably use their family land. Yvonne Knight-Carter, a landowner and the current board chair of the Center for Air's Property Preservation, helps the center forge alliances and collaborations with conservationists, funders, foresters, and community economic development groups and organizations. Brian Bershaw is the program manager for the Forest Products Marketing Unit at the Forest Products Laboratory. Brian works collaboratively and strategically with researchers, wood innovation specialists, and external partners to advance forest products markets throughout the United States. Jenny, Yvonne, and Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John, for having us on today. Great. Jenny, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Center for Air's Property Preservation? Sure. The Center we'll just call it the center from here on out. The center was created in 2005 in response to the issue of heirs' property in the rural areas of South Carolina. Quick non-legal definition of heirs' property, it is land that has been passed down without a will, but yet the family members own it jointly. And therefore, it makes it difficult to own and manage that form of that land. And so the center was created to provide the education and legal services to those landowners. In 2013, the center began a sustainable forestry program in which we provided education, technical assistance, and help African-American forest land owners access markets. And the way we did it is we work with both those who had clear title and those who had heirs property. Excellent. Can you give us a sense of how many landowners qualify as heirs' property and how much land are we talking about? So that's a good question, John. And that is the big question, not just for South Carolina, but for the whole entire United States. No one knows exactly the number or the acreage of heirs' property, but I can tell you in our 22-county service area, we have guesstimated that there are approximately about 130,000 acres of heirs' property. That's pretty meaningful in the state. Yvonne, I mentioned that you currently serve as the board chair for the center, but you're also a landowner. Could you tell us a little bit about your family property? Where is it? How much land do you manage? How long has it been in your family? Those kinds of things. Okay, certainly, John. And thank you for having me. Our property is in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, in Berkeley County. And my sister and I inherited the land in 2008 from our father. Now, the land has been in the family for nearly, if not more than, 150 years. 
Wow. However, the portion that we own and inherited from our grandfather was about 350 acres with about 60 to 70 acres that's sort of scattered around our hometown, Monk's Corner. My grandfather at one point actually managed and planted about 500 acres, and that was in corn and cotton, tobacco, and in later years, soybeans. On our property, we had a grits mill, so the corn went to the grits mill. We also had a grocery store that serviced the community, and we had a tobacco curing barn. So once we harvest the tobacco, we cured and then took the tobacco to market. I came back to the homestead about uh, maybe 11 years ago, and I was all set to come and put my feet up and be retired. However, that's not what happened. I read an article (laughs) in the newspaper, the Charleston News, and um, it stated that the federal government was giving funds to help minority families, landowners, to preserve and maintain the property that they owned and realize what value they had there. So I said, oh, that sounds great. I made a few phone calls because I did recognize one of the names in the article. And that's what led me to the Center for Heirs Property, because I finally wound up talking to the forester at the center. And I'll say Sam Cook, relentless Sam Cook. I know Sam. Yes. (laughs) So there's where our education began, because he invited me to a workshop. And at that workshop, I began to think about, uh, after listening to Dr. Latham, what was my ties to the land, what was my land ethic, and lots of realizations started to come and realized that I needed to do something. Sam talked about the forestry department at the Center for Heirs Property, and um, I just couldn't quite see what was going to come of it, but I stuck with it, and we did a lot of learning We walked the property. We hired a consultant, and I think that consultant was on that same program on St. Helena's Island that day. And um, a large part of it was building the trust because, you know, we always just felt like "Mm, the property is not going to be ours in a minute if we sit back and not pay attention. So, like I said, it was building trust, and it was a lot of learning to do because I knew nothing about this anyway. So we wound up hiring the consultant. We worked with NRCS, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. They walked the land with us. They explained what we had on the land. I knew nothing of invasive species and (laughs) wildlife habitats and There was a different kind of pine tree than the pine tree that I was looking at. You know, what was merchantable, timber, etc. So we moved on from there and, and we hired the consultant. The consultant came back with a plan for us. And along with NRCS, the Forest Commission who are all partners with the uh, Center for Air's Property, we were able to plant 85 acres of loblolly trees. I wish we could have planted some long leaf, but that wasn't in the plan. So that's sort of basically where we got. I mean, we are now at about our second round of harvesting to plant and just some other things that came to me, and I call them light bulbs. Uh We talked about staggering the planting. You know, how do you realize income more often than just the 10 to 15, maybe 20 years that it takes for the trees to grow. Part of that training or education was visiting a uh, a farm, a tree farm, 2,000 acres. So listening to him talk and what he was doing on his tree farm, I said, well, I can do that. And I said, you're my idol. And <laughs> <laughs> so that's how 
we began to work. I learned at that particular time that it's just not one cut for a stand, but you can actually cut four times on a stand. And that last tree or the last trees that you leave on there, you grow them for poles. And of course, it brings in more money. So as I said, it was totally a learning process, learning that Arbogen were growing trees or seedlings that would grow straighter and faster growing trees. And like I said, it wound up with us planting 85 acres. It was a 90-acre track, but we left five of those acres for wildlife. And in those same five acres, we later did a conservation stewardship practice where we did hinge cutting for wildlife. I'm struck by a, a number of things in, in your response. And one is it's, it's very clear the passion that you have for the property and the importance that it has, you know, not only for you, but for your family. And, and you talked about, you know, the concept of the land ethic. And that was very evident in the way you described the care and the, the advice that you got as you thought about how best to manage the property. And I think that's really, I think, something that we see more and more with the landowners is that the passion that they have for the land, the family heritage that it represents, and the multiple uses of the land. It's used for timber, but it's used for other benefits as well. And we'll talk about those in a minute. Jenny, I want to go back to you for a second in that, you know, this podcast is talking about markets. Can you talk a bit about the importance of market access for the low wealth landowners that the center represents? And then maybe also address some of the historical challenges that the heirs properties have had uh, trying to take advantage of some of these market opportunities. Sure, John. The center is a recipient of a grant from the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities when they started their Sustainable Forestry African-American Land Retention Program. And one of the first things we did was hold an educational workshop where we invited our partners in our CS, our State Forestry Commission. And one of the questions that we as staff at the center posed to the landowner audience was, you know, how many of you have ever heard of NRCS, right? And there was one out of, no, two out of 85 people who had heard of NRCS. So what that speaks to is that a lot of our landowners, the historically served African-American landowners, one, they were not aware that forestry at that time was an $18 billion industry in the state of South Carolina. And as uh, Miss Yvonne said earlier, they had land, but they didn't have access. They didn't have access to education. They didn't have access to the system because they didn't know where to go. And that was one of the things about what the center really wanted to do was to provide that access. And after we started our sustainable forestry program, we had a basically um, a network analysis of all of our partners. And one of the things the partners said was that the center offered them street cred in the sense that these organizations, these agencies would have never gotten to our landowner because some of them don't do outreach. And if they did do outreach, they're not going to necessarily go into these communities. So the benefit of the center partnering with these organizations and holding these quarterly workshops is we provided that atmosphere for our landowners, and I use the term our loosely, for our landowners to get to know the representatives of these governmental and for-profit organizations and state organizations. And, you know, it's something about breaking bread with someone that helps you build a relationship. So that was our way to give our landowners that access to these individuals into the system, or we created a system for our landowners to get access and then become players in this field, as Ms. Yvonne referred to earlier. Thank you, Jenny. And Yvonne, I understand your property is not an air property, but maybe you could talk about what you see as some of the biggest challenges that you face as a forest landowner. Oh, well, some of the challenges, um, uh, one of the challenges that took place for us uh, this past summer was a lightning fire. (laughs) So people often think, okay, the trees are planted and you just go on about your business. 
So that was a little bit scary. But again, working with the foresters from the center, not knowing everything, they came out and gave us assistance in assessing what needed to be done beyond this. Because my thought was, oh, Lord, we lost 30 acres of trees. But as we went through and looked, we realized that the tops of some of those trees were still green. So those will survive. So we may not have lost as much as we thought we lost. Another challenge is getting good pricing and having the loggers come in to harvest your trees. We did that, I guess, back in April. Then the weather didn't cooperate. So we didn't harvest all that we thought we were going to harvest. But as the saying goes, when you get dealt lemon or you have lemon, you just squeeze it and make lemonade. So <laughs> again, working with NRCS and, and the foresters, we were able to identify about 16 acres that we were able to harvest and we will do a conservation stewardship program and plant some trees anyway. So when the weather is cooperating, we'll go back in and complete the harvest for those two stands because it was a total of about 50 acres that we were attempting to harvest. So that's a challenge trying to get the best price that you can get for your timber. So again, I call Sam, what's good now? <laughs> you know, and the consultant that we worked with initially uh, has been helpful as well. So those are a few of the challenges. Of course, you have to keep your fire lines refreshed. You have to do burns when you need to do the burns to you know, keep the fuel from becoming too much, and I said fuel, but the undergrowth. So those are some of the challenges, but I guess I don't really see them as a real, real challenge. It's just something that needs to be done in order to complete the job. So John, may I add to what Miss Yvonne has said? Of so I'm not sure if I made it clear at the beginning, but when we started our sustainable forestry program, the idea was for our foresters to be, quote unquote, the matchmakers between industry and government. But here are some problems that they encountered. So Miss Avon is kind of like, she's not the normal landowner, but these landowners had smaller tracts of land. And of course, it wasn't managed. So it's difficult to get someone to even come in and cut it down so that they can replant and sustainably manage it. Or we couldn't find contractors who would work with these small landowners. So that has been a challenge for us. Landowners who are heirs, property owners, initially it was about them being able to get a farm track number. And what we were able to do even before it was placed into the farm bill is we had worked with our state FSA Farm Service Agency to basically use the mechanism they used when it was the tobacco settlement for people to be able to get farm track numbers. And of course, you know, the farm track numbers, the access to get to NRCS so that you can get to the conservation programs. So that was some of the challenges for the other landowners. And ones that we still having, we're having, that's why we actually have five foresters on staff. So literally, we have our own crew on staff because our landowners cannot access the consultants. Yeah. And John, I guess I might also add for people that are listening or thinking about doing this, with the NRCS, there is a cost share. So for us, because we qualified as female first-time farmers or tree farmers, and as minority, we were able to get a 90-10 cost share offer, I guess you would call it that. And for us, we said, we're not going to spend money out of our pockets. So some folk might look and say, well, you know, I can't afford the 10%, but guess what? You have that 10% in your woods. And I'm going to call it in the woods because I didn't learn, you know, that it was the forest later. So it's a matter of cutting some of those trees to 
fulfill your part in that cost share and not necessarily go into your pocket to do it. So that's one of the other realizations that I had as well. Okay. That's a great program. Awesome. So we've talked a a little bit about markets and in in particular for timber. I want to talk a little bit about ecosystem services. And and timber is quite obviously one of the the most well-known services that forests do provide, but we must not forget the host of other services that they provide as well, and including those related to water. Trees are critical to the water cycle. They help manage runoff. They help to minimize flooding. When you're looking at your forest management plans, how do you think about the provision of water and the the protection of the water services that the forest provide? Oh, I don't know that I've gotten that far, but we have a stream that runs through our property that lets out into a larger body of water. And we also have two ponds on the property. And I'm still learning You know, they talk about the watersheds and all of that. So I'm just going to be very honest that I am still learning when it comes to the water and what that means on our property. Yeah, and that's great. And one of the things we're trying to do with the Keeping Forest organization is to help create those connections in people's minds between all of the benefits that forests provide, whether it's the sequestering of carbon, the the filtering of air, the the cleaning of the water, the the flood control, things of that nature, so that people recognize and acknowledge the benefits that these forest landowners are providing to a society and to a watershed. And I know when you've conducted your harvesting activities, I'm sure the loggers took appropriate care to manage stream crossings and streamside buffers and, and things of that nature, which is an important part of managing your land for that water. Right. There is a term for it, something Z-zone. <laughs> Z-zone. So SMZ, yes. They were aware of that. And actually, because of where two of our tracks is located, we did have to really think about whether we're going to build a crossing from one piece of property onto the other in order to harvest on there. We finally figured out how to go a different way because um, that was just going to take a lot, you know, bringing in pipes and the size of the stream to actually, you know, get across. And then what would the damage be with the log trucks going across and, you know, doing what they do? Uh, on your property. Jenny, can better forest markets help stem the loss of heirs' property? John, the answer is yes, because access to markets then would provide for better pricing for timber. And then, of course, better forest markets can drive higher incentives. And actually, we discovered when we started our sustainable forestry program that the sustainable forestry program motivated families to resolve their heirs' property issues because now they saw a reason why. So it became the carrot. It was the carrot for these landowners to finally start having a dialogue with their family members so they could resolve the heirs' property issue and then begin to sustainably manage their land, as you said earlier, for generations to come. If I could take us back to the ecosystem services discussion for a second. Of course. You know, we live in a hurricane zone, pretty much. That's it. And what people didn't recognize, as you said earlier, the significance of having trees and how it can help communities be more resilient from flooding. I think we've had two or 3,000-year floods in the last couple of years. And so, you know, that is one thing that in our educational workshops that we're pointing out to landowners, we may not be calling it ecosystem services, but it's a matter of them knowing your trees are more than just trees and how they're contributing to everyone. Excellent. I think that's vital importance for the landowners to understand the value that they're creating. It's not just the creation of timber for the building products market and pulp and paper market, but there's other services as well that really help to protect our ecology, and that's fantastic. So I'd like to um, close this segment by maybe asking each of you to share maybe one thing that you'd like the listeners to know about forest landowners. I guess one of the things that if you haven't done that yet, is that it is a process. It doesn't happen quickly. 
and not to give up because it is well worth the time and all of the energy that you put into it. And one of our main goals was to ensure that the land will stay in the family. So by planting trees, and especially in this staggered way, it provides an income for future generations to be able to afford to hold on to the land and a learning process as to what you're supposed to do in order to hold on to the land. Last thing is if you haven't done a will, make sure you get a will in place. You have a succession plan in place. So estate planning is just very important. I'm going to use a line from the Keeping Forest Initiative. In order to save a forest, you must use it. The only challenge with that is that there are forest landowners out there who don't have the tools, access to the tools or the knowledge in which to properly use their forests. And so they're inclined to either sell the property or those things. But here at the Center for Air's Property Preservation, we are helping landowners to see that we want the land to work for them rather than them working for the land. So my exit speech is, to save a forest, the best way is to use it. Excellent. Well, Jenny and Yvonne, thank you both so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Brian Brashaw is the Assistant Director for Wood Innovations Programs at the U.S. Forest Service. Brian works collaboratively and strategically with wood innovation specialists, researchers at the USDA Forest Products Laboratory, and external partners to advance forest products markets throughout the United States. This effort uses market-based approach to support forest management and support rural economies. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Could you explain a, a little bit? I mean, that was a, a bit of a mouthful in terms of the uh, elements of your role. Maybe talk a little bit about what you do and how that uh, helps to drive the development of markets for forest products. Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in northern Wisconsin, and my dad worked for a Harvard Lumber Company, and his friends worked for the U.S. Forest Service. And from that early age, I, I really got this connection between forest management and the markets that come with it. You know, I went to school to become a forester. And then as I was doing that, I saw this opportunity to really think about engineered wood products and, and wood products manufacturing and went out to Washington State University where I advanced my skills and, and education to do that. And that's really been kind of the driver between my whole career is thinking about this connection between forestry and forest products and how we can support the development of new products, the, the introduction of new markets, and really use those in a broad-based way. My role with the Forest Service is to make this connection between market-based approaches to help us manage our forests, to help us keep forests as forests, to help us reduce hazardous fuels, to create jobs, and to build more sustainable building materials. And so that market-based approach is what we're really trying to do to support this connection between forest markets and forest management. You know, one of the things that we've been promoting through these podcasts is the connection between strong markets for uh, timber and for forest products and overall forest health. You've know, got an interesting dynamic here in the United States where you've got a mix of both publicly owned land and privately owned land. What's your sense in terms of the connection between strong markets and good forest health? You know, I think that it's been shown over time that when markets are strong, you know, forestry and forest management thrives. You know, it's this connection of what is it that we can do to support family-owned businesses? What is it that, you know, markets support income? Markets support keeping forests as forests. Markets protect against conversion to other uses. Markets give us opportunity to use storm and, and storm-damaged materials. Markets help us reduce hazardous fuels and minimize the risk for catastrophic wildfires. You know, those are, I think, all benefits that we achieve when we have markets. When 
we have low values or really lacking markets, you know, these forests really face significant challenges to long-term sustainability as forests. And I think that's the key that we are really trying to do is support market and market development to be able to ensure that we have viable markets for these products. You know, trees grow, right? And they're growing faster than we harvest. And so that's when we get out of balance a little bit is when we have this challenge between extra fiber that doesn't really have a home. And then, you know, again, creates fire risk, creates the opportunity for, you know, conversion to other other uses or other land applications. And we just have seen time and time again that when markets are strong, that forest and forest management thrives. Great. You know, we talked a little bit earlier in the podcast with Yvonne, who has land in South Carolina that has been in her family for, for quite some time. And it had been converted from other ag products to timber. And uh, she and, and her family decided to do that because of their view of you know, not only the potential markets for the timber products, but also you know, their view of the, the heritage of their land and kind of what they wanted that land to represent. One of the things I think that's interesting about what you're trying to do through the research and the development of markets is to try and identify other forest products that are out there that could potentially increase the demand for those products or create other outlets for that. Mass timber is, is an example. Maybe talk a little bit about market development and where do you see some of the most interesting opportunities to develop markets going forward based on some of the research? You know, just a quick kind of fly through all the markets that we currently have. And, you know, in the United States, we've really been very reliant on pulp and paper and lumber, you know, but whether it be hardwood lumber or softwood lumber for various applications. And and those have been long-term markets and very long-term stable markets for the country. You know, 70 to 80% of lumber and structural panels goes into housing. And so when our housing market is strong, we have strong markets for those kinds of products. You know, you mentioned mass timber. It's really a unique opportunity because when it comes to mass timber, we're really replacing other building materials. We're not replacing wood with wood. And that is opening up new markets for us as we move forward. Mass timber is a, is a large cross-section panel that maybe, you know, there's various product families out there, cross-laminated timber Glue lamb is the one that's been around for the longest. Laminated veneer lumber, nail laminated, dull laminated, you know, and a, a new emerging mass plywood product. So we, we really do have some product families within mass timber. But the Forest Service has invested, you know, very strategically in, in really trying to grow markets in places like multifamily, residential, commercial institutional construction, taller buildings, you know, that historically would not have been built out of timber. And I think that's a huge opportunity that we have going forward is to continue to create and support markets that are new markets, that are markets for, you know, for these traditional materials. We've seen definitely a change in pulp and paper from printing and writing paper and a decline to, you know, just about everybody has seen an awful lot of container board disguised as cardboard boxes delivered to their homes, you know, in the last year. So we've certainly seen a transition within that industry. But pulp and paper is still very important and it's still a very important market for us in the U.S. South and across the country. There are, you know, Other emerging markets in the energy space, you know, we're seeing significant amounts of softwoods converted into pellets and shipped into the European Union as part of the Renewable Energy Directive. Emerging markets are also, you know, coming forward in Japan and South Korea, again, as as an opportunity to replace high fossil fuel carbon producing products with something that is more carbon neutral or that stores and replants and revegetates, you know, our, our ability to take CO2 out of the air, store it in wood product, and then plant again. So I think that these are all, you know, some kind of large traditional markets that currently exist. Yeah, I think that's great. And I know here in the in the state of Georgia, there was some changes in the in the rulemaking that are allowing the construction of taller buildings. And I don't know if I can quote exactly the the from and the to, but I think you know prior to the current change that wood construction buildings were pretty limited in terms of their overall height, but some of those restrictions have been changed once it was you know, commonly understood that taller buildings could be safely constructed with wood. And you know, kind of removing some of those barriers should be quite helpful in, in helping the growth of industries like mass timber. 
you know, the, the Forest Service has really tried to catalyze, you know, this opportunity and work with a ton of partners to help us uh, help us do that. You know, in 2014, we just had a handful of buildings in the United States built out of mass timber. Now we're approaching, you know, a thousand that have either been built or in design or under construction. And we've been able to do that, you know, through, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, building code changes, but also through kind of strategic investments like Woodworks, which provides free engineering and project assistance and education to the architecture and engineering sectors. You know, that's been a huge win to really create this opportunity. You mentioned the change in building codes. You know, the International Code Committee has approved multiple additional classes of timber buildings that allow buildings now to be built under the International Building Code up to 18 stories. And there are other approaches to even go beyond that. So those are all just a couple of examples that have really supported this. You know, there's four CLT cross-laminated timber manufacturing plants in the South. And those products are ending up in these kinds of buildings that we're talking about, the commercial multifamily institutional. But they also are used in places that we don't think about in industrial applications like right-of-way platforms and construction staging areas. You know, what I kind of lovingly call wood roads, right? Where we have this opportunity to use the cross-laminated timber as part of construction and really create this opportunity to, you know, replace old growth, you know, large diameter products that maybe are best suited with smaller diameter, with smaller, faster grown materials through, you know, a lot of lot of southern yellow pine. Yep. And expect we'll see continue growth and capacity as well. I had the opportunity to tour a CLT building that was nearing completion in Midtown Atlanta, and the architect and the builder gave a presentation. And what kind of struck me was that he had mentioned that the wood components, depending on the structure, either came from the Pacific Northwest or were imported from Europe. Much of that material could have been produced locally, and maybe there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg kind of dynamic going on is that, you know, the capacity may not exist due to the demand. But uh, I think as we're seeing more and more interest in mass timber construction, that we'll see more and more capacity in the markets where um, the construction is taking place. Mass timber is, is manufactured in Europe and in Canada and in the United States. And certainly we are doing what we can to support increased you know, domestic manufacturing and using our own wood fiber and species. And I think you mentioned it, we're right at the beginning. You know, We've got a thousand buildings built. That sounds impressive. It's terrific that the building you mentioned in Atlanta, You know, I was there when they were just breaking ground. They hadn't even started flying these large timber panels through the, uh, through the air at that point. But there's over 15,000 buildings a year like that they could be built out of wood. And so I think that investment that the Forest Service has made in education, in technical assistance, you know, in research, we haven't even necessarily had a chance to talk about that, but supporting the implementation through, you know, design and code and fire performance and durability, you know, all of those kinds of things that our Forest Products Laboratory is involved with is really to make sure that these products are safe and that they're going to last a long time. We've had a number of kind of special initiatives that we've invested in. The Forest Service has an annual Wood Innovations Grant Program, which, again, allows this opportunity to provide design and engineering assistance and catalytic investments that allow us to continue to see this grow. So I think that we really do have this opportunity to you know, significantly expand our manufacturing here domestically in the South and in other parts of the country because the, the markets are national. There are a lot of buildings that are in construction or under design, you know, in the U.S. Southeast. And I think that the potential is really terrific for expansion of the current plants, but future plants as well. You know, I, I think one of the things that we've seen in the South is, is really kind of some strategic thinking as well. The folks at the University of Arkansas have really spearheaded construction of university campus buildings the largest residence hall in the country now out of wood is there at the University of Arkansas. But they've really gone beyond that. They've worked with Walmart and, you know, Walmart is going to be constructing their new corporate campus for over 10,000 employees in a partnership with a CLT producer that will be uh, locating in Arkansas and using locally grown lumber. Yeah, and I think that's a great project. So Doug McMillan, who is the Walmart CEO, was a guest at an event that the Georgia Forestry Association put on, and he talked about the importance of 
forestry and forest products and, and did talk about the new home office that they're constructing there. And I think that's going to be a great example of mass timber that you know, may be a model that others have looked to as they think about their own construction opportunities and, and hopefully help drive some growth for that. Well, it's really a triple win. You know, it's fiber that's grown and removed and managed in Arkansas forests. It's local economic development and manufacturing opportunities. And it's an improved, more sustainable building material. What a triple win. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. So I want to change gears a little bit. We've, we've talked about the societal value that forests provide in terms of building materials, in terms of pulp and paper, uh, in terms of, of fuel. Forests provide so much more than that. We've had a lot of discussions with the Keeping Forest organization around this concept of ecosystem services. And there are provisioning services like we've been talking about with timber, but forests also provide a significant cultural value. They provide other essential environmental services related to air and to water and to carbon, things of that nature. And you know, how do markets uh, help to ensure that forests can continue to provide those types of benefits going forward? You know, when I like to think about our forests, you know, I've grown up in the woods and, you know, a huge part of my career has really been around this connection with forest markets. And really it comes down to me, forests make our lives better, right? And the biggest part of that is is in so many ways. You know, it, it may be the most traditional things that we think about, lumber for our homes or, you know, variety of other, you know, really important packaging materials or fuels that, you know, eventually will be derived from wood-based materials. But it's more than that. You know, it's water and our ability for forests to store and filter water. It's a really, and I think, an emerging understanding of the role of forests in sequestering carbon. You know, carbon dioxide is removed from the air. It's converted into carbon. And then when we do turn that product into a building material or into a durable product, that carbon is stored for the life of the building or the life of the product itself. You know, those are the things I think that really, you know, people aren't, are just starting to understand is this connection between how forests really make our lives better. You know, you mentioned some of the the heritage and education and recreation kinds of applications, all again, part of really good, sustainable, managed forests. You know, there is an opportunity for us to think about how that you know, is communicated. And the Forest Service has done a couple things. We've invested in, in an organization known as for, Hashtag Forest Proud. And they've really, I think, helped to tell a good story, a true story of how forests make our lives better. We've partnered with America's Forest with Chuck Lavelle. And Chuck certainly indicates, you know, and, and talks about this connection between, you know, how important the whole of forestry is. It's not just about wood products. It could be about grouse habitat. It could be about reduced hazardous fuels. It could be about tribal businesses that are managing those lands and they've been managing them for generation after generation. So I just think ecosystem services is something that we're going to start to think about more in terms of how our forests help us with water and carbon storage and oxygen, creating oxygen for all of us. It struck me when we were talking with Yvonne earlier about the connection that she and her family have had with the land. And you know, she talked about the development of forest management plan and the care that the loggers took around the streams and the water crossings and things of that nature. And so it wasn't about trying to maximize the dollars on that land in this particular harvest, it was how do we care for this for the long term? And so you've got you know, this family ownership of this property, which creates a, a connection for them. And the timber provides the income for them to you know, continue to drive that. But there's an emotional component that is creative that's hard to overestimate. You know, it's it's so true. You know, the Forest Service and, and so many of our incredible partners think about, you know, forest management. And, you know, that's the goal. You know, it's healthy, strong, resilient forests. And wood products happens to be part of that plan in some cases. Other, you know, wildlife habitat or ecosystem diversity, plant and animal diversity. So I just think there's so many different aspects to forest management that we don't think about. We tend to think mostly about the products that come out the tangible products, but we have this opportunity to really improve our ability to tell that big picture story that we are managing our forests for long-term health and stability. And as part of that, things like forest products and ecosystem services are, are all part of it, along with you know so many other wonderful benefits that we generate every day. 
So we talked a bit about mass timber, which I think is a, an emerging market coming out of the forest product space, but there are others that are emerging as well. Some examples could include cellulose, nanomaterials, biochar, things of that nature. What's going on in those areas? You know, the Forest Service has made really significant investments. Uh, our National Laboratory, Forest Products Laboratories in Madison, Wisconsin, has really been spearheading along with many of their university and, and other partners. You know, some of these products that you just mentioned, you know, the cellulose nanomaterials, you know, we are breaking wood down, not into chips and not into just individual, you know, cells, but into its basic material, which has these really incredible and unique properties. Some of that development work, the fundamental science is taking place at the Forest Products Laboratory, and we're just now starting to see kind of these emerging opportunities. There's been quite a bit of work in looking at using cellulose nanomaterials in concrete. By replacing part of the Portland cement, it really improves the curing characteristics, which allows for an increased strength property. So we now have this opportunity to replace a high CO2 emitting product and really, you know, enhance our ability to to use lower grade, lower value materials. And so that's just one example, I think, of some things that are emerging. But there's a, a parking lot at the uh, U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities in Greenville that includes uh, cellulose nanomaterials as part of the mix and performing quite well. There's some other areas that we're looking at, I think, you know, with biofuels. We're seeing construction of kind of new biofuels manufacturing facilities, a aviation fuel plant in the state of Oregon, transportation fuels. There's a plant that's being constructed in Mississippi. So I think we're going to start to see, again, continued opportunities for biofuels as we, as we move forward. And then, you know, we've been very familiar in the South for sure in wood pellets. And if you take wood pellets and then roast them, or in this case, technology known as torrefaction, we can turn them into a coal-like product, high BTU values and crushes and pulverized just like coal. So again, we have this unique opportunity, both domestically and certainly internationally, to start to replace coal with a wood-based, renewable wood-based solution. And I think those are the kinds of things that, that we see. There's also a, a lot of interest right now in a product known as biochar. It's very much emerging. If we continue to roast that wood to a point where we have a very high carbon content, think almost like lump solid wood charcoal in a refined state, that's biochar. And while it's a small industry in the United States, we think that it has great opportunities to enhance in things like land and water filtration, mine land reclamation, use as an agricultural amendment. It's finding its way into soil mixes and soil amendments. And then I believe we're going to start to see more industrial applications of biochar again. So small, emerging, but again, this opportunity, because I think one of the things that we need to think about is a healthy forest products industry has markets for all of the products that come out, not just for saw logs. And products like the nanomaterials, the biochar, the torrefaction, and fuels allow us to take advantage of other parts of the harvest, you know, whether it be slash or thinnings or lower value underutilized species. So I think all of those kinds of things are really important for a overall healthy wood products industry. Yeah, I think it's important to the overall future of the industry. You know, people typically think of forest products as toilet paper and two-by-fours and, and don't realize that there is so much more that's being made today and the possibility for products to be developed and they're being developed uh, all the time. Absolutely. The Forest Service is, you know, is really has a, a continuum from discovery and fundamental research through demonstration and technical assistance and outreach to market development. And I think that broad spectrum of our ability to do that and work with many partners. You know, universities are huge partners of ours to develop and advance these technologies, products, and market development and the markets that they come with them. So, Brian, in your role, you deal with state, private, and tribal lands. Maybe talk a little bit about the connections that you're trying to develop with those groups and and how they're going to help in the development of, of markets for forest products. So our wood innovations program is housed within state and private forestry. And within state and private forestry, what that really means is we're connecting with states, we're connecting with industry, with landowners, and we know that 60% of the forests in the country are, are privately owned and tribal nations themselves. 
You know, and then when you add on top of that, our engagement with the National Forest System. So the Forest Service has 193 million acres that we manage that are part of our national lands. And so that market development effort really spans both federal uh, lands, but also with our state and private partners. You know, it's been uh, really tremendous opportunities for us to engage uh, collaboratively with so many states and state forestry associations across the country. Yeah, so many of the building materials, particularly in the in the southeast, you know, my thought comes from pine and other softwoods. Talk a minute about the market opportunities for hardwoods as well. Yeah, you know, hardwood forests are incredibly important, and and markets for them are are just as important as they are for softwood. You know, we've we've seen a change. You know, about fifty percent of hardwood products now are really what we consider industrial products: pallets, packaging, and crating materials. Those tend to absorb a lot of the lower value, lower volume uh, hardwood markets. The higher grades, those things that are, you know, again, more visually appealing, tend to work their way into furniture and paneling and flooring. We've seen a change. You know, a lot of that would have been used domestically in the, in the U.S., but a lot of that is export. So export markets have become really important for the hardwood industry. So there is quite a bit of work, I, I think, recognition that that industry deserves as creating, again, you know, the connection between healthy forests and, and healthy markets. There are changes, and we, we certainly see opportunities within some of these other emerging products that we've talked about. But right now, the hardwood markets are really important that we have these industrial applications. You know, one of the things I think people don't appreciate is that in the United States, we replace about 22 million railroad ties every year. And that's really an important market for the hardwood industry as well. No, I didn't realize that. It's amazing. Rail is important and, uh, you know, they tend to use a little bit, but they're <laughs> they're starting to use all sorts of different species as we go. That's for sure. Yeah, I imagine so. It's more diverse than it's ever, ever been. Well, this is interesting. I learned a lot just talking to you here. Thanks to Jenny, Yvonne, and Brian for joining us today. This podcast episode was made possible by the generous support of the U.S. Forest Service Forest Products Lab, Forest Products Marketing Unit, and Innovation. Music by Chuck Lavelle. This is John Mulcahy, Vice President of Sustainability at Georgia Pacific for Keeping Forests, a diverse coalition conserving the natural, economic, and cultural value of Southern forests. I want to thank everyone for tuning into How the River Flows. Join us next time as we explore the connections between healthy forests and clean water and see how others have built a partnership that benefits all. You can listen to How the River Flows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Carlton Owen. This is Judy Tackett from Keeping Forest. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to keep up with everything we're working on, consider joining our mailing list to get the latest in your inbox. You can sign up at keepingforest.org.